open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42, beginning in verse 13. And we'll read until the beginning of the next chapter. Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 13, please listen with faith, with care. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He steers up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, You are gods. Hear you, deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord. He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered, and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter, and Israel to the plunderers. Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burnt him up, but he did not take it to heart. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, 
for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give man in return for you, peoples, in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? This far the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, what we do not know, please teach us. What we are, what we have not, give us. And what we are not, kindly make us. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, we ask this for our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised. Amen. I think I mentioned this before, but... John Calvin opens the Institutes of the Christian Religion with what I think is a very interesting statement. He says, True wisdom consists in two things, knowledge of God 
and knowledge of self. Here's what John Calvin means by that. We don't really know who God is without knowing who we are. And we don't know who we are if we don't know who God is. It's a chicken and egg situation. If we just look at ourselves, we'll probably think that we are really good. If we look to people around us, we might start to realize that we are not all that good. But there's an easy solution for that. We try to look only at people who are worse than us. Because no matter how bad you are, there is always somebody who is worse. You can always say, I'm not bad as that guy. But John Calvin challenges this notion. We need to stop looking horizontally and we need to start looking vertically. We need to look up to God. And when we look up to God, we inevitably realize that we are not that good. We realize that we need salvation just like everybody else. And this is what is happening in the passage that we just read. Israel is being reminded that God does all things for his own glory. God is saving Israel, not because Israel deserves it, but for his own glory. And this is what I want us to see today. Because God saves us, we ought to proclaim his glory. And we ought to proclaim that he is the only Savior. And we are going to see that in three topics. We need salvation as much as everybody else. We are saved for God's glory. And we are saved to declare that God is the only Savior. So first, we need salvation as much as everybody else. That's what we see in what we just read in chapter 42, verses 13 to 25. I, I would like to focus on verses 18 to 20. Read with me again, please. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind by my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. If you are reading, if you are following in the ESV, or actually pretty much any Bible in English, uh, you can see there's a subtitle. Very likely there's a subtitle there that says that these verses are referring to Israel. Israel is the servant in these verses. That's, that subtitle is not part of the original text, but it reflects the fact that virtually all Christian commentators understand that Isaiah is contrast, contrasting two servants here. Here's how a group of commentators say it. 
The point of the rhetorical questions is that no one is as blind and deaf as this servant. In this context, the Lord's servant is exiled Israel, which is spiritually blind and deaf and has failed to fulfill God's purpose for it. This servant stands in contrast to the ideal servant who is Jesus of the servant songs. This is Israel. This servant, deaf and blind, is Israel. Perhaps you remember when we were studying chapter 6 of Isaiah, when Isaiah received his prophetic calling. God called Isaiah to be a prophet and sent him to preach to Israel. And what was Isaiah's message? Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of these people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah's message would have this paradox, ironic result. The more he preached, the more the people would refuse to hear and see. The more they would be deaf and blind. So that's the irony. Israel, God's people, was deaf and blind. They had ears, but could not hear. Eyes, but could not see. So much so that they end up going to exile. And going to exile was not an accident. God himself sent Israel to exile. God did that to teach Israel a lesson. And not even then, Israel understood. Israel needed salvation as much as everybody else. And so do we. Perhaps you think about salvation as something that happened in the past. You have been baptized, or you were at a church, and you walked to the altar when the pastor called, or you prayed a prayer many years ago. I want to say that I think that all these things have at least some value in them. But we need to realize that salvation is not just something that happened to us in the past. Salvation is something that needs to be happening today. Maybe, I guess, many of us know about the 95 Thesis, Martin Luther's 95 Thesis. They were the document that jump-started the Reformation. Do you know what is the first of the 95 Thesis? It goes like this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. We have been saved. We are being saved. And we will be saved. The Bible talks about salvation in these three verbal tenses. In Second Timothy 
chapter 1, Paul says like this. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but sharing suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us, past tense, and called us to a holy calling. So there is a sense in which we have been saved. That's what we call, in theological terms, justification. In the moment we put our trust in Jesus, in the day of our conversion, we are justified. That's it. Justification is a once and for all event. You can't be more justified than in the day that you were born again. But there is also a sense in which we are being saved. This is what the same Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the wood of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved. It is the power of God. So in other words, there is a sense in which our salvation is an ongoing process. This is what we call sanctification. Sanctification is the process in which our salvation becomes more part of who we are. This is how the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Sanctification is the process in which we become more and more like Jesus. We are saved. We are being saved. And there's also a sense in which we will be saved. Matthew 24, 13 says, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. If we are to be saved, we need to endure to the end. And now, I want to affirm that I'm firmly a five-point Calvinist. I believe in total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and I certainly believe in perseverance of the saints. But we need to understand what we mean by perseverance of the saints. Here's how Wayne Gruden defines this doctrine. The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. This doctrine should give us great confidence. The same God who once saved us in the past will keep us to the end. But 
this is what I want to highlight from this definition now. Only those who persevere until the end have truly been born again. Our perseverance is not something that happens apart from our works. We are saved by faith alone, but we are not saved by a faith that is alone. True faith is known by its works. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is commanding the Philippians to work their salvation. At the same time, he's saying that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. How can we reconcile these two things? I have no idea. But I know this. God doesn't want us to be merely passive. He wants us to work our salvation. How do we do that? Well, we need to make use of the means of grace. Depending on whom you ask, you're going to get a slightly different answer about what are the means of grace. But the classic list given by the theologian Louis Burkhoff is this. Baptism, Lord's Supper, and the preaching of the word. Charles Hodge adds prayer to this list, and we might discuss that and add more means of grace, but for now, I want you to stay with this far. So in order to work our salvation, we need to be baptized. We need to, we need to come to the table in the Lord's Supper. We need to hear the preaching of the word. And we need to pray more. There is a sense in which if we don't do these things, we are proving that we were never saved after all. And there's a great danger that if we neglect the means of grace, we will eventually become blind and deaf. Our conscious consciences will be seared and we'll be unable to see and hear the truth. Israel needed salvation as much as any other nation. We need to realize that we need salvation as well. We can't rely on something that we did in the past. We need to rely on Jesus' finished work on the cross. And we need to realize that salvation is an ongoing process. We don't boast in our salvation. We give thanks to God. And we continue to let God work in our lives. That was my first point. We need salvation as much as everybody else. And we are saved for God's glory. 
We need salvation as much as everybody else. And we are saved for God's glory. That's what we see in chapter 43, verses 1 to 7. I want to focus on verses 5 to 7 now. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Listen again to verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Did you ever wonder why God created the world? That's how the Bible starts, right? With creation, God creating the world. Some people say that God created the world because he was lonely, so he needed company. Others say that God had a necessity to love, so he created the world in order to love it. We know that these things are not true. This is what the 1689 Confession says. God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself, is alone, in and unto himself, all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in by unto and upon them. God is a trinity. He was never alone. He was in very good company throughout eternity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit were loving one another throughout eternity. They were in a perfect bound of love. God had no need to create anything. So why? Did God create something? Why did he create the word? Short answer, he created the word for his own glory. Again, the 1689 confession. In the beginning, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the word and all things therein. This is the same language that Isaiah is using in the passage we read. The same way that God created the word, he created Israel to be his people for his own glory. God did not save Israel because there was something special in them. He saved them for his own glory. God took them out of Egypt. Moved nations from the path of Israel. God does not save us because there's something special in us. We are saved for God's glory. And I want to quote from the Westminster Shorter Catechism again. The first question and answer in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this What is the chief end of man? 
Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I love the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's a Presbyterian document. But early Reformed Baptists in the 17th century loved this catechism as well. So much so that they wrote their own version of it. It's called Keech's Catechism. It's named after Benjamin Keech, who was one of the early Reformed Baptist pastors. Uh, Keech's Catechism is virtually the same as the Westminster Shorter Catechism, with just a few differences. One of the differences is the first question. So, instead of starting with what is the chief end of man, the Reformed Baptists started with a different question. They started with, who is the first and best of beings? The answer is God is the first and best of beings. So the message is the same, but it's reinforced. God is the first and best of beings. Our chief end is to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. Our chief end is not to pursue happiness. Unless we define happiness as to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our chief end is not to live happily ever after. Unless we mean living happily ever after with God in eternity. Our chief end is not to live comfortable lives. Unless we understand that belonging to Jesus is our only comfort in life and in death. In everything we do, we need to realize that our chief end is not to serve ourselves but to give ourselves entirely for God's glory. That was our second point. And now we are saved to declare that God is the only Savior. We need salvation as much as everybody else. We are saved for his glory, and we are saved to declare that God is the only Savior. That's what we see in chapter 43, verses 8 to 13. Let's read it again, please. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this, and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I declare and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? That's what God is saying in these verses. God's people exist 
to declare that he is God. God will save Israel, not because they deserve it, but because he loved them. And the response Israel should have is to proclaim that God is the only Savior. And that's what God expects for us today as well. We are saved to declare that God is the only Savior. God could send angels to proclaim who he is, and actually he did that many times in the Bible. God could send prophets, like he did with Isaiah and other prophets. But in these last days, God decided to send the church to proclaim his salvation. That was the last thing that Jesus told his disciples before he went to heaven. Our authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How does that apply to us today? Simple. We need to proclaim that God is the only Savior. In everything we do, that's what we should do. Proclaim that God is the only Savior. We need to be careful with this. People are observing us, and they should. The way we speak, the way we behave, these things will tell the people around us who is the Lord of our lives, ourselves or God. So we need to make a commitment to kill sin in our lives. So next time you feel tempted to sin, just say to yourself or to whoever is tempting you, God is my Savior. I don't belong to myself. I wish I could finish my time here with you, just saying how awesome you are. And you are. Uh, but... Just saying that would not be faithful to the Bible. And I don't think it would be helpful either. You are deaf and blind. And so am I. There's nothing special about us. And the more we realize this, the better. People say that admitting that you have a problem is the first step to solve it. We need to admit that we have a problem. It's called sin. Salvation by grace alone can, cannot be just a phrase we put in our confession of faith. It is something that we need to really live by. We need to look up to God more often. If we do that, we'll realize that we are not all that good. But we also realize that there is salvation if we truly repent of our sins and start living for God's glory. Amen.
Let's pray. Dear God, indeed, you are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. You are. Please, Lord, help us to remember this and to live in a way that is in accordance with this truth. Thank you for salvation. Please work salvation in our lives and transform us to the image of your Son that we may live for your honor and your glory. Amen.